and Rock the Block is next Sunday. Isn't that right, Pastor Ben? All right, so here's what I'm going to ask you guys. If you know somebody who's in 6th or 12th grade, would you invite them to Rock the Block if they're in this area? Obviously, they're like, I know someone in California. Yeah, sure, invite them, I guess. Anyways, that's coming up next week. It's going to be a great time to kick off our youth ministries for the year. Um, a couple other things I want to mention before I jump into the text today. Uh, the first thing is, uh, you might have got one of these on your way in. It's our communion packets. Uh, if you're watching online, this would be a good time to kind of, if you have some bread and some juice in your home, you, we're going to be participating in communion together at the end of this message. So we'd love for you guys to join us. And um, if you do need a gluten-free option, I think we do have those available as well. So you can just kind of motion to the guest service team as well. Um, one final thing before I dive in. The passage that we are reading today is the very final passage in the book of Judges. We've been going through a series throughout the entire book of Judges, and I'll just say it this way. This, if you read this passage in full, probably one of the most R-rated passages in the entire Bible. So if you have kids with you, this would be a great time to maybe take use of our youth ministries, our kids' ministries today. We have wonderful, loving volunteers who will take great care of your kids. Um, just going to put a, a warning out there in advance. My sermon today will not be R-rated, but it will probably be PG-13. Um, simply for the fact that I'm not going to apologize for God's word. What we're going to read today is here for a reason, and I'm really excited to dive into it. And yet, I do want to walk that fine line between um, our entire congregation being able to hear today's word and also um, to, to not shy away from some of the tough passages in the Bible. So if you're with me, we're going to dive in, but I would crave your prayers as I'm preaching this morning. Okay, so let's just do that together before we start. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to come before you empty-handed as someone who totally is in need of your grace and I don't just say that because I'm a preacher on a stage trying to sound spiritual. Lord, I really do need your grace, and I pray that um, you would give me that today as, as, as I bring your word, as I communicate your word and, and the truths that you've been uh, revealing to me throughout the last few weeks. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak powerfully to each one of our hearts today. Please create a softness in our hearts, God, a moldability where we're willing to approach your word ready to be changed. And I pray that we would be tender-hearted as we approach you today. So we pray that you would speak powerfully and that you would speak tenderly and that you would speak in the way that each one of us needs to hear today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1971, there was a psychological experiment called the Stanford Prison Exper uh, Experiment. You might have heard of this. Um, but there is a guy named Philip Zimbardo, and him and his team were hoping to study the psychological effects of there are certain power dynamics in a simulated prison experience. So what they did was they paid volunteers $15 a day to either act as prison guards or prisoners in, this, um, in, in the, the prison environment. The study was supposed to go on for two weeks. They had to cut it short after almost six days because of the extreme abuse that began to take place. And it was a totally fake scenario. 
None of this was real. No one was actually in real prison for any real crimes. But what surprised the psychologists was how intense things became, how quickly they became intense. Okay? The fake prison guards quickly took on this authoritarian mindset and began forcing the prisoners into dehumanizing and degrading scenarios. They used psychological manipulation, humiliation, and even physical abuse to assert their control and their dominance. And, and the prisoners, as a result, experienced extreme stress and psychological breakdown. It was an intense and bizarre uh, study. And what psychologists have since concluded, and this is a quote, is that in the absence of proper authority or guidance, people can devolve into behaviors that align with their personal whims and desires. In other words, when there's no rule to follow, people very quickly wind up doing what they want, and it's not as good as we would like to believe. Life is quickly devalued when authority is cast off. See, the, the guards were regular people. The prisoners were regular people when the study began, but when they got into it, the guards began to adopt this cruel and oppressive role. When there was no central leadership, people made choices simply based on what was ever, whatever was right in their own eyes. And it led to moral anarchy and social chaos. Here's the point. Maybe we aren't as far from rock bottom as we would like to think. Like driven by a toxic mixture of fear and pride and a distorted sense of power, in other words, our sin nature, the darkest aspects of human nature can emerge, leading to actions that defy our better moral judgment, and it maybe isn't as far removed from us as we might like to think. And to be honest, this is nothing new in the human experience. Okay? Um, this kind of moral bankruptcy has been evident in every era of human existence. It's, it's been there. It was there at the flood. It was there at the fall. It's been there through, down throughout history. And we've seen it over and over and over as we've been studying through the book of Judges. We've seen the painful reminders in, in chapter after chapter after chapter that humanity, and specifically God's people, are in constant need of God's grace to rescue. The truth of that is seen in no more of a grotesque way than in the chapters we're going to approach today. Like I said, very R-rated if you read the entire thing through. But even at its rock-bottom moment, here's what we see. We're going to see the beautiful hope of restoration held out by a holy but loving God, and we find that, that Jesus is actually everything that they're missing and everything that they're not. And so if you're taking notes today, the title of my message is restoration for rock bottom. As we finish up the book of Judges, I'm titling this message, Restoration for Rock Bottom. And, and as, I, as I read through the text and as I summarize certain parts of the text, I'm actually, not at the end, but during it, I'm going to be drawing out certain points of application that I'm noticing so that you can see it connected to the text. But if you don't get anything else, this is the one point I do want you to get, is that when life, is that life is restored when Jesus is Lord. Okay, life is restored when Jesus is Lord. That's, that's going to be the main point. Because even when people, when God's people hit new lows that we never thought were possible, there's always hope to hang on to. 
There's, there's always hope to hang on to. There is restoration for rock bottom, and we're going to see that in the person of Jesus Christ. So, quick review of what we've been studying so far in the last two to three months uh, in the book of Judges. What happened right at the beginning, Joshua leads the people out of the promise, or into the promised land, out of Egypt, and, and he calls them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the scriptures, the commandments that God had given, the words that he had spoken from, the, from Mount Sinai when he, when he wrote the tablets of stone and sent them down the mountain with Moses, and then Joshua calls them to live up to their commitment, their covenant with God. And if they did this, they would be showing the world what God is like. This is what Joshua calls them to. But right at the outset of the book of Judges, Joshua dies. So the book of Judges mainly tells the story of Israel's total failure to live up to this. It tells of the moral corruption of Israel under a bad yoke and essentially how similar they became to the Canaanites, the pagan culture that, they, that was around them. The painful reality of the book of Judges is that by the end, well, somewhere in the middle, you couldn't really tell in a moral sense who is worse, the Canaanites or the Israelites. Towards the end, you could probably make the case that the moral degradation had gone so far that Israel was in a much worse state than anybody else around them. But this sad story is supposed to create hope for the future. There's a reason that Judges is in our Bible. Right? There's a reason that these particular chapters are in our Bible. Because um, we can see this in the, the design of the whole book. There is, at the beginning, there's a brief introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure. And then what you see is an increasing crescendo of the moral degradation that is accumulating in, the, in the, the hearts and in the culture and in the souls of the Israelites in the midst of Canaan. And it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. God called Israel to be a holy people, and it didn't happen. They did not live separate from the culture around them. Instead, they began to blend in with the Canaanite culture, and they adopted all of those religious practices. They started worshiping all of those different gods. And then we get a glimpse of what is about to happen in the rest of the book. There's this cycle of just constant failure, right? So it's going to repeat throughout the entire book of Judges. They're called by God. They reject God. They fall into sin. God lets them experience the consequence of their sin. In the middle of that, they cry out to God, and God sends a rescuer to bring them back to himself, to call them back to right relationship with him. And then they get complacent, and it happens again and again and again and again and again. That's, that's, the, that's how the book of Judges is structured. But as we go further and further, it gets worse and worse. All the way to the very final verse of the book of Judges. So we're going to actually just read that one verse together because it's really going to summarize a lot of what we're going to cover today. So if you have your Bibles open, it's Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Um, and, and if you're able to, I'd invite you to stand together and we're going to read this together out loud. It's a really, really long passage. It's this one verse. And it goes like this. Let's read together. In those days, Israel had no king and all the people 
did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Great job. You just stood up. Now you can sit back down. Well done. This final section shows that Israel has hit rock bottom. They're at their lowest point. They, they cannot go any further. There isn't even a secular nation in the Bible that is sunk to a further moral position than where Israel is at at this point. This is fully and completely tragic. It's a tragedy, and that's the point. And right at the end of the book of Judges, there are two tragic stories that sum up the entire condition that the author of the book of Judges is trying to relay to us. And they're structured by the key line that we just read. In those days, Israel had no king. And it just repeats over and over and over again. In fact, it's repeated four times just in these three chapters, culminating with that final verse. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what, it, what seemed right in his own eyes. And so this is actually the first point of application that I want to draw out this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. God's people need to hold on to God's word with godly reverence. God's people really need to hold to God's word with godly reverence. In other words, we need to fear God more than we actually do. This is what's happening here. They don't actually see God as imminent and as holy and as worthy of our total submission and reverence. This is why they're in this position. is because they don't actually have a proper and healthy fear of God. And this is not the world. This is God's people. This is, this is God's people who received Ten Commandments from the literal finger of God that they still have in the ark in their midst. And yet they've totally lost a fear of God. They totally lost a fear of His Word. We, we as God's people, need to take His Word more seriously. This is the result of not taking God at His Word as it accumulates over time. When God's people no longer take God's word seriously and instead they do whatever is right in their own eyes, they actually begin to justify the most evil and repugnant things imaginable. But it's one thing to hear God, it's another thing to fear God. God may be speaking to you today and that is His grace. That is His gift to you. But what you do with that is your gift to Him. It's one thing to hear God, it's another thing to fear God. So God's people need to hold God's word with a godly reverence. This is not something to be taken for granted. And so what we see in the last five chapters of the book of Judges, they're not actually, there's these two stories, main, two main stories, they're not actually placed in any particular timeline. They're not placed in a chronology these two particular narratives have just been selected by the author to highlight the depths to which God's people have fallen, spiritually and socially. So chapter 17 and 18, which Pastor Jeff preached on last week, highlights how they did what was, what was right in their own eyes in a spiritual sense. They did whatever was right in their own eyes as they related to God. Right? So the tribe of Dan sets up their own priest, and they do kind of their own thing, they're like, it doesn't really matter what the law says. We're going to just worship God the way we want to. They did whatever was right in their own eyes in a spiritual sense and how they related to God. These three chapters, 19, 20, and 21, which is what we're going to cover today, 
they highlight that in a social sense, how everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes in terms of relating to other people. And it's a really very disturbing read, and, and that's actually the point of why it's here. The point is the shock value. So, with that being said, we come now to the text of Judges chapter 19. Um, this is the bottom of Israel's spiral into depravity. They only do what is right in their own eyes. And this is, this is how the author lays it out. Judges 19, I'm going to read the first ten verses. Now in those days Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem to Judah to be his concubine, which was like a second status wife. But she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. After about four months, her husband set out for Bethlehem to speak personally to her and persuade her to come back. And he took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. And when he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. And her father urged him to stay a while. So he stayed three days eating and drinking and sleeping there. Hospitality, major, major value in this part of the culture, in this part of the world, especially this time of the of history. Her father urged him to stay three days eating, drinking, sleeping. On the fourth day, the man woke up early, ready to leave, but the woman's father said to his son-in-law, I have something to eat before you go. So the two men sat down together, and they had something to eat and drink, and then the woman's father said, oh, just stay another night, enjoy yourself. The man got up to leave, but his father-in-law kept urging him to stay, so finally he gave in and stayed the night. On the morning of the fifth day, he was up early again, ready to leave, and again, the woman's father said, Ah, I have something to eat. Then you can go later this afternoon. So they had another day of feasting. Later, as the man and his concubine and servant were preparing to leave, his father-in-law said, Look, it's almost evening. Stay another night. Enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can get up early and be on your way. But this time the man was determined to leave. So he took his two saddled donkeys and his concubine and he headed in the direction of Jebus, that is Jerusalem. It's crucial to know this. They're leaving later in the evening. That's why this particular scene is set up in the story. So they set off in the direction of Jebus, which is actually what, is, what it was called as a Canaanite city before it became Jerusalem. So this is the location of Jerusalem, but it doesn't belong to God's people quite yet. And it's crucial to know that, like I said, it's late in the day. So they, they start heading back towards Jebus. And it gets to about nightfall, and they're in between a few different cities. One of them is Ramah, one of them is Gibeah. Ramah is, uh, belongs to a Canaanite, uh, a Canaanite kingdom. Gibeah belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, of Israel. So the guy goes, let's stay in Gibeah because it's an Israelite town. Dun, dun, dun. Foreshadowing, not a good thing is about to happen. They get into the town, and very strangely, nobody offers them a place to stay. Now, remember, there's no hotels back then. You would show up to a town, and you'd ask around, and somebody would inevitably offer you a place to stay. Because, again, hospitality was a major, major value. Still is to this day in the Middle East. So they just started to rest in the middle of the town square. And there's an old man who comes from working in the fields, and he sees that, and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to stay in the open town square come to my house and spend the night. And he must have instinctively known how bad of an idea it was going to be to stay in the open town square. 
So the perverted men of Gibeah, remember, Israelite people, they find out about these travelers and they go up to the door and they demand the chance to do perverse things to the Levite himself. And instead of allowing this, the Levite offers up his concubine to them in his place. And so this woman is abused and taken advantage of all night long to the point that she dies, clutching the doorstep of the host home. This is verse 27. When her husband opened the door to leave the next morning, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold, and he said, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body on the donkey and took her home. And when he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 parts. And then he sent one piece to each of the tribes throughout all the territory of Israel. And everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who is going to speak up? Can it get any worse? Can it get any worse? What happens here, and you need to see this, this is an eerily similar situation to what happens when two angels visit Lot in Sodom. Genesis 19. You can, you can read these two side by side later today. It's very fascinating. What happens is not only eerily similar, it's almost identical. Okay? So if you go back to Genesis 19 and Judges 19, you read them side by side, you're going to notice all of these things. A small group of travelers arrives in the city in the evening. A person who does not belong to that city himself observes the presence of these people. The travelers have a mind to spend the night in the open square. At the insistence of the host, the travelers agree to spend the night in his house. The host is hospitable, prepares a meal, and then lust-driven men surround the house from the city. They demand the host deliver the male guests to them so that they can take advantage of them. The host protests this display of wickedness. And when the host's protests prove useless, a substitute female is offered. Absolutely disgusting. The parallels here are dangerously similar to what happened in Sodom. And what happened after that was God sent fire from heaven and consumed the entire city in Genesis 19. Very dangerously similar to what's happening here in Gibeah. Only this time, the grotesque evil is coming from within God's people. So this is the second point of application I want to draw. God's people need to deal with their own ungodliness when God reveals it. God's people need to deal with their own ungodliness when God reveals it. Like this whole story of the book of Judges is God calling his people to himself out of their own sin, out of their own idolatry, out of the ways in which they do whatever seems right in their own eyes. God is calling his people to do what is right in God's eyes. And he sends judge after judge after judge. He sends other nations to come in and oppress them to try to get their attention. And they keep ignoring. And this is how far they get. 
So we can't allow small moments of compromise in our lives. One mistake, you can get back. Two mistakes is a new habit. You start justifying a third one, you've created a lifestyle. The, the reality is that small moments of compromise are going to be the most efficient way for the enemy to get you off track, to get you doing whatever is right in your own eyes. It's all about these little choices of devotion. And, and <laughs> Throughout the book of Judges, God is calling his people to deal with their sin before it consumes them. But the painful revelation of this book is that God's people have the capacity still to grieve God's spirit by ignoring his conviction, by ignoring his word, and doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. I'd like to submit this to you from the heart of God that it is a good thing to deal with your sin before it becomes a monster and you're forced to use extreme actions. When it comes to turning your heart back to God, daily moments are better than drastic measures. They get to this point and the thing that finally repulses them is a concubine who's been taken advantage of all night long by an entire gang in the city, murdered, cut up into pieces, and sent. Like, that was the drastic measure it took to finally get their attention. Can you imagine how much easier it would have been in the daily moments of devotion, constantly repenting, constantly turning their hearts back to God? God's people need to deal with their own ungodliness when God reveals it. So now we're just through chapter 19, the first chapter. It, it was ugly, but it gets worse. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the Israelites united as one man from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, which is just another way of saying the entire country. It'd be like from saying, like from New York to Los Angeles. And you're like, okay, got it, the whole country. From Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, including those from across the Jordan in the land of Gilead, the entire community assembled in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people and the tribes of Israel, 400,000 warriors armed with swords, took their positions in, a, uh, in the assembly of the people of God. Word soon reached the land of Benjamin that the other tribes had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites asked how this terrible crime had happened. And so the Levite then, he speaks up. And he tells them the story of how they got to this point. Only conveniently makes himself look like a poor, helpless victim. <laughs> As if he didn't send his concubine to these lust-driven men to be abused. As if he didn't himself treat her poorly and, and make her angry enough to leave him. And... But in response to this, all the Israelites band together. And, and for the first time since the book of Joshua, Israel seems united in its desire to destroy immorality from within their midst. For the first time. Ironically, in order to do that, Israel must destroy one of its own clans. The enemy of God, this is the point of that, the enemy of God is no longer outside of them, but within. It's, it's the sinfulness within themselves that they finally see 
which is setting themselves up against what God is calling them to. And so in a series, and you just I'm going to summarize chapter 20 real fast, but in a series of three battles, both sides take really heavy losses. The body count on both ends proves that God's judgment is not just against Benjamin, but against all of Israel's men. Literally only 600 men of Benjamin escape. All the women and children are killed. Brutal, gory, disgusting, heartbreaking. And to add to the bleeding, the other 11 tribes make a vow that they are not going to allow any of their daughters to be given in marriage to any of those men of Benjamin. They're trying to drive them out of existence. They're cutting off an entire tribe. I just try to feel the heartache of God in this moment. As a lover who's been faithfully and passionately wooing his people back to himself constantly, and to see this happening. The men of Israel eventually realize it's short-sighted. They can't be without all 12 of their tribes, so they, they find a solution. They find a loophole to their vow. And it makes it even worse. <laughs> Judges chapter 21, verse 19. Technically, no one's going to give their virgin daughters to the 600 men of Benjamin. They're just going to look the other way and allow them to abduct whoever they want. Then they thought of the annual festival, verse 19, held in, uh, of the Lord held in Shiloh, south of Labona and the north of Bethel, along the east side of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem. And they told the men of Benjamin, who still needed wives, go hide in the vineyards, and when you see the young women of Shiloh come out for their dances, rush out from the vineyards, and each of you can take one of them home to, ben, to the land of Benjamin to be your wife. And when their fathers protest and they come to us, we'll tell them, please be sympathetic, let them have your daughters, for we couldn't find wives for all of them when we destroyed Jabesh Gilead. And you're not technically guilty of breaking the vow since you didn't actually give your daughters to them in marriage. So the men of Benjamin did as they were told, each man caught one woman as she danced in the celebration and carried her off to be his wife and they returned to their own land and rebuilt their towns and lived in them then the people of israel departed by tribes and families and they returned to their own homes so israel is now resorting to the same behavior that got them into this mess in the first place taking advantage of 600 women so the men of israel could save face which is why the author ends the chapter like this. In those days, Israel had no king, and the people did whatever was right, whatever seemed right in their own eyes. These narratives are here for a reason. They serve as a warning to God's people that its own destruction is the result of turning their backs on God the God who loved them, who saved them and rescued them out of Egypt, who blessed them with guidance and his, his word, which they have in the law of Moses. But they, they turned their backs on God and they found themselves needing time and time again to be delivered. This time from the greatest enemy, which is the sin that resides inside of them. See, that's the problem with living with no king. You know, getting whatever you want always being allowed to do whatever seems right in your own eyes, 
ridding yourself of having to answer from anyone. The, the further you go from living under divine authority, the more you lose. And this brings me to my third point of application that I notice it. When, when God's people do what's right in God's eyes, they see the way God sees. They see other people the way God sees people. When you don't do what's right in God's eyes, when you're doing whatever seems right in your own eyes, you don't see other people the way God sees them. You don't see them as made in God's image, as eternally valuable. You see them as either obstacles or products to consume. You're either, the way, when you see with what's right in your own eyes, you see with either pride or lust. And so another human is either an obstacle in the way of your pride or a product to consume to satisfy your lust. But when God's people do what is right in God's eyes, they see the way God sees. They see humanity the way God sees humanity. They see God the way God sees God. They see God's word. They, they see God's creation. They see God's law the way God sees it. And they take it seriously. And they treat other people seriously. Humanity and dignity is restored when God's people do what's right in God's eyes. But where God is not regarded and feared and honored, where people do as they please, there may be a temporary fulfillment to your desires, but there is no deep, lasting, sustaining joy. Life, life dries up when you do whatever seems right in your own eyes. Dignity is taken for granted. People are devalued. Humanity is devalued the less it places itself under the authority of the one who made them in assigned value in the first place. See, here's a fascinating feature of how this, this narrative was written, and this is beautiful. People joke that I always get the tough passages to preach. The reality is I actually picked this one. I was like, can I please preach this text? Because this, this is fascinating. You need to see this. In the previous narratives in the book of Judges, even minor characters have names, even if they're not important to the story. In this, the longest coherent account in the entire book of Judges, only one person is named, and he's a minor character. He doesn't really bear a ton of relevance to the story. His name is Phineas. He's in chapter 20, verse 28. He's a priest, okay? And he officiates at Bethel. But all the main figures are anonymous, okay? The Levite has a geographic home but no genealogy. His concubine, whose death is central to the entire plot, doesn't have a name, the, the concubine's father, the old man from Ephraim living in Gibeah who tries to protect these visitors. And, and even in the beginning of chapter 20, when, when your focus shifts from individual things to national concerns, individual identities are just swallowed up in collective action and reaction. So when you read Phineas's name in chapter 20, verse 28, it kind of catches you by surprise. It's got a shocking um, rhetorical effect. And it's drawing your attention to this. Phineas was the grandson of Aaron. Moses' brother. In other words, this account that we just read is not even a full two generations from when God descended onto Mount Sinai, spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend, revealed his glory to Moses, gave him the law inscribed with the literal finger of God that Moses marches down the mountain from, and not even a full two generations later, this is happening. Because Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, Moses' brother. So here we are, 
just a couple generations removed from the greatest mountaintop experience in Israel's history. So why doesn't the author name anyone in this section? Because the namelessness of these characters show just how dehumanized people have become in such a short amount of time. In a godless society without any king, where everyone does whatever seems right in their own eyes, this is what happens, and this is how fast it happens. To have a name is to be somebody. And since names are given and used by others, to have a name is to have significance in the community. But the Levite in this chapter has no name. The men in Gibeah see this guy just as an object, not as a human. Right? What happens to his concubine? More appalling even. In contrast, you, you remember earlier in the book of Judges, you've got the strength and the dignity of Deborah and Jael and so these amazing women, and the Levite's concubine is reduced to mere human flesh who the men of Gibeah just devour. The anonymity deconstructs the significance and the identity of each individual human made in God's image here. Ironically, in a world where where humans make themselves the measure of all things, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the individual eventually counts for nothing. It's one thing to hear God. It's another thing to fear God. When God's people recognize no king and instead do whatever seems right in their own eyes, we find ourselves further and further from the source of life. But when God's people do what's right in God's eyes, they see the way God sees. I told you this was restoration for rock bottom. Here's where we get to that. This serves not only as a warning to God's people. If you go back and look at this, this is beautiful. This is a literal inverse picture of what life can be like when there is a king. The point is to describe everything that life is like when there's no king. The inverse of that is beautiful. When we actually do come under divine authority, when we fully submit ourselves to the only true king of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, a sense of dignity and peace and humanity is actually preserved and reverence for God is elevated. Why? Be because you look at this, the only hope in this story lies in that final phrase, in those days Israel had no king. This is what it's like when that's true. But now we do. So what is life like? There is a hope that emerges from the pages of Israel's rock bottom story. That there is a painfully obvious need for a king to restore Israel back to a right relationship with God and its rightful place in this world as God's representatives. Jesus is that king. Israel rejected God's kingship and they crowned themselves as better lawgivers, but their way was confusing, it was contradictory, it was convoluted, and the constant violence against women and against their own people is just total proof of Israel's failure. Israel needed a leader who did not do whatever seemed best in his own eyes. Israel needed a husband who would not sacrifice his bride to save his own skin. Jesus is that husband and leader. The Levite threw his bride to the mob and did nothing as her sexuality was abused and her body was mutilated. But instead of sacrificing his bride to save himself, Jesus sacrifices himself to save his bride. Jesus was thrown to the crowds. Jesus is 
clothes were torn. Jesus was naked and his body was stripped and abused for the pleasure of those watching. Jesus is the only man who is worthy to lead God's people and he protects his bride unlike the Levite was willing to do. Jesus is the only one who does what's right in God's eyes. In fact, the, the Apostle Paul tells us when Jesus died, this is in Ephesians chapter 5, that when Jesus died as the bridegroom, he did so to make us holy and clean and acceptable before God. Right? Israel's civil war was this attempt to try to clean up the mistakes of Gibeah, but the immorality of Gibeah was in them too. The other 11 tribes showed how just how capable they were of the same actions. If they wanted to purge Israel of sin, they needed to purge themselves. They needed a rescue from sin. And Jesus is that rescue. Jesus, a true embodiment of God in this world, died so all people could be purged from their sin. He replaces our violent and treacherous hearts with His own Holy Spirit. He restores us from our self-destruction and gives us abundant life. Because of Jesus, we are fully restored to who God has called us to be. Not a people of lust and violence and pride, but a people empowered by self-sacrificing love and mercy. True life and joy are only found when Jesus is the king we're submitted to. Or you could say it this way. Life is restored when Jesus is Lord. Life, flourishing, dignity, joy, peace, true abundant life is restored when Jesus is the Lord that we're submitted to. We're actually going to close this morning by celebrating communion. And I think this is the perfect way to close out our series of messages in the book of Judges. We called this series God to the Rescue because it shows how time and time again, throughout the book of Judges, God calls his people to come closer to himself and to represent himself well in this world. And yet time and time again, Israel failed to do so. They chose their own sinful ways over God's perfect way, and in so doing, they had to face the severe consequences of their sin. In fact, their relationship with God was only able to be fully restored once they returned to worshiping God in his temple and making sacrifices to atone for their sin. This was the way that they had to approach God year after year after year because it was the only way to approach God as sinful people. That was the way until Jesus came. And he made a new way for us to approach God without our sin coming in between. He was that way. When Jesus came to earth, he lived a perfectly sinful life, and yet sinful people accused him of blasphemy, murdered him on the cross, and while he hung there on the cross, God applied all of our sin record to Jesus' spotless record. And, and on that cross, he bore the infinite wrath of God in your place and in mine. His body was pierced. It was bloody for me, for you, for the person next to you, for the person you can't possibly find a way to forgive. God did that for everyone so that everyone would have a chance to be made right with God. And when we take communion each month, this is what we're remembering, this is what we're celebrating, that we can have a right relationship with God. Again, freely coming to Him at all times because of what Jesus did on that cross. This is what we celebrate. This is the gospel. This is the good news. 
And so we celebrate communion together. Um, if you got one of these um, at the beginning of the service, this is a good time to get that out. If you didn't, um, the ushers have a few spares. We'd love to get those into your hands. Just go ahead and motion to them. They're going to come down the aisle and uh, they're going to offer some of those if, you, if anyone needs an extra. Um, it could just be that right now you need to calm your heart and prepare your mind today for celebrating communion. Scripture is pretty clear. You don't flippantly or casually just run in and use this time to indulge. We pause because there's gravity to this moment of remembering the gospel. So in just a second, I'm going to give you a chance to just do some business with God, but maybe you might say to him something like this, Lord, are there pockets of sin that I need to pay attention to? Have I built some wall some way between myself and somebody else because of my sin? Have I grieved the Holy Spirit in some way? God, would you point that out right now? I'm going to pause. I'm going to invite you to show me where I've sinned. I'm willing to confess. I'm willing to repent and turn from that. The Bible says even if you approach this and there's something you have against somebody else, don't take this. Go and deal with it and then come back and take this. One thing to hear God is another thing to fear God. So I want to confess. I want to repent. God, please convict me this morning and, and lead me in your path of righteousness. Please do business with us this morning, God. If you would, let's remove that top seal right here. Carefully peel it back. And as we eat the bread, we're going to remember that this body of Jesus was broken to pay the price for our sin. One of our elders, Dennis Christman, would you uh, just pray as, uh, as we approach this element of communion? Lord Jesus, we take this time to remember your great sacrifice for our sins. We remember your broken body and shed blood. You paid the penalty for our sins. We repent our sins that we have committed before you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you because of what you did for us on the cross. We can have our sins forgiven and have access to eternal life. Thank you for loving us enough to pay this great price for our redemption. In Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and 24 says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
grab a cup. If you're wearing white, pro tip, point that arrow away from you. We're going to peel back that second seal, and as we drink the fruit of the vine, we remember the lifeblood that was willingly shed in our place to bring us new life in Christ. Another member of our elder board, Myron Matz, would you pray and thank the Lord. Lord, it's hard for us to fathom how you would leave the splendor and the glory of heaven to come down here willingly, Lord, to rescue us from our sins. And Lord, you are the only one that was qualified because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So thank you, Lord, so we're willingly going to the cross, letting your body be pierced, letting the blood flow for us. Lord, we stop now. And we say thank you. We're a grateful people. Lord, you are our Lord and our Savior forever. Amen. Amen. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. close of this service as you're exiting. Uh, there'll be some team members at the door with offering plates if you'd like to contribute to the benevolent offering. Um, the benevolent fund enables us to assist church families who are in need. It also funds the community needs program, which meets on the third Tuesday of every night. Um, so if you want to contribute to that, you have an opportunity as well. Let's take this moment as we finish the service to... Uh, to just approach the cross and full of gratitude that God has made a way and brought us close to him.